You can turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John in chapter 12. Uh, we read a long section in this passage earlier in the service. We'll focus in on a shorter uh, section of it this morning for our sermon. We're in John because today is Palm Sunday. It's Palm Sunday. And uh, it's the first day of what Christians have traditionally set aside as Holy Week, on which we remember the events of the week during which Christ was crucified, arrested, crucified, died, and was raised. And so on Palm Sunday, we remember Christ's entrance into Jerusalem, his glorious entrance into Jerusalem, on his way to the cross. On Thursday, Monday Thursday, we'll remember the Last Supper, the night that Jesus is betrayed and arrested. Uh, and then Friday is Good Friday, on which we remember around 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon, the death of Christ, the crucifixion from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. And then, of course, Easter Sunday, right, where we remember the resurrection of Christ early on that first day of the week. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Today's Palm Sunday, and Kevin read for us an extended section in John 12, including the triumphal entry, right? And it's Palm Sunday because when Jesus came into Jerusalem, he was greeted as Messiah, right? We read these words. What were they saying? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel, right? This is our Messiah. This is our Savior. This is the one who's going to deliver us from the Romans. This is our victorious king. And what did they throw down in front of him as he rode in on a donkey in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy? Palms, and they're very close. They're putting on the ground. They're laying a red carpet for the victorious king. Right. And to all appearances, for the average observer... This is Jesus' moment of glory, right? The triumphal entry. This is triumph, right? And now he's going to enter into Jerusalem, and if our expectations are right, he's going to topple all of his enemies, and probably by the end of the week, he'll be sitting on the throne in glory. And that is not the glory that Jesus enters into. I want us to see this morning that the glory of Jesus at the end of this week, the glory that Jesus, as we're going to read, is preparing the people and preparing the disciples to understand, is not the glory of Christ seated on a throne. It's the glory of Christ hung on a cross. We're going to focus this morning not so much on the glory of the triumphal entry, but of Jesus' words in preparing the crowds and preparing the disciples to understand the true glory, the real glory of this week, which, yes, is resurrection, but this morning we'll focus on the glory of the cross. The glory of the cross.
Let's read our passage together, and then we'll pray. We won't read the whole thing we read earlier. I want to start this morning in verse 27, John 12. This is Jesus reflecting to the people after his entrance into Jerusalem. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, please speak now as we come to your word. Holy Spirit, please open up these words that we might understand them. Holy Father, show us your Son that we might see him, that we might see his glory, that we might see your glory. Enlighten our minds now, O light of the world, that we would see your glory and be drawn into it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse 27, Jesus utters words which are strange words for a triumphal king. Now is my soul troubled. He's just been greeted as the victorious Messiah, and yet his soul is troubled. Now is the moment of his glory and yet he's troubled. In verse 23, he tells his disciples something interesting. He tells them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. If if you keep in mind the rest of the context of the Gospel of John, you'll know that time and time again, Jesus has told his disciples, the hour is not yet. The hour is not yet. The hour is not yet. As early as the the wedding at Cana, right? When Mary asked Jesus to help with the wine, he said, the hour is not yet. My hour has not yet come. Now, for the first time, he says, my hour has come. 
This is my hour, and specifically now, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But he's not talking about the triumphal entry, and he's not talking about a throne. Verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is saying, now is the time for my glory, and it's going to come through my death. So no wonder, even in this hour of glory, Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. Jesus, we understand to be true God and true man. Truly God, truly man, and in his humanity, truly troubled at the prospect of the cross, at the prospect not only of suffering and flogging and death, but at the prospect of bearing the sins of the world and the wrath of God. And what does he say in his trouble? What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. The death of Christ was no accident. The cross was no accident. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. This is the hour he'd been moving towards since the beginning of his ministry. This is the hour he'd been moving towards since his incarnation. This is the hour he'd been moving towards from all eternity. For this purpose I have come to this hour. And then again, glory, right? He said, this is the moment of my glory. And now he says, verse 28, Father, glorify your name. That the cross will be a moment of glory for the Son and a moment of glory for the Father. That it's in the humiliation and death of Christ that the Father gets glory. That the Son gets glory. And then this voice comes from heaven. And again, this is the culmination of this whole Gospel of John right? and of the Gospels. Three times we hear a voice from heaven at Jesus' baptism, at Jesus' transfiguration, and now here finally and culminatively at the crucifixion. A voice comes from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. crowd's not sure what to make of this. Maybe it's thunder, maybe it's an angel. And Jesus explains, this voice, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. The Father's testifying to the Son. And then in verses 31 and 32, Jesus explains what's about to happen. And these two verses are we're going we're to focus on this morning. 31 and 32, where Jesus explains the glory of the cross. There's more we could say about what happens on the cross, what Jesus' intention is in his death, than what's here, but this is going to be a good place for us to start. How is it, this is our question this morning, how is it that the cross, that the death of Christ, is the glorification of Christ? How is Christ glorified in his death? What glory is there on the cross? And we're going to see this morning that there is great glory on the cross. Glorious judgment, glorious victory, and a glorious drawing of all people to himself. Okay? 
glorious judgment, glorious victory, a glorious drawing to himself. We start with judgment. Verse 31, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the judgment of this world. So what does Jesus mean by this? We ought not to think that Jesus is speaking here of the final judgment. The final judgment of the world did not happen on Holy Week. It has not happened yet. We await that day. But there's a kind of judgment that's coming, according to Jesus, on all of the world at the cross. Now is the judgment of this world. What kind of judgment? I think we'll find helpful commentary on this concept from Jesus himself earlier in the Gospel of John. John 3, and you'll know this passage, at least the first few verses. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now listen to this, verse 19. This is the judgment. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Speaking of himself. The incarnate Son of God. right? God himself, the light of all creation, has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. John explains this dynamic from a different angle in John chapter 1, right? Speaking of Jesus, in John 1 verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Here is God himself treading the earth. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. There's a rejection of Jesus that we see across Jesus' ministry, but which culminates, of course, in the crucifixion. This is the ultimate rejection of the light of the world. The light of the world brought under judgment. The light of the world crucified. God on a cross. This phrase, now is the judgment of this world, was opened up for me when I read the words of one commentator who says, basically, the people who judged Jesus, the people who sentenced Jesus to death, thought they were bringing judgment on Jesus, and they were, but in bringing judgment on Jesus, they were actually pouring judgment on themselves. They're passing judgment on themselves. They're revealing what's really in their hearts when they crucify God. And so the, I think there's a couple of kinds of judgment that go on here in the cross. One is a kind of judgment that actually speaks to what we all have done in our sin. That the cross is the picture of the ultimate rejection of God. God showed up and the world said, we don't want any of this. We're not interested in hearing what you have to say. And friends, actually on some level, we're all the ones who stood there saying, crucify him. Because we all, by our sin, say, I'm not interested in having Jesus on the throne. 
because he's rather inconvenient. And I'd much rather he not be around. This is what we do in our sin. I'm not interested in God. I, it's my throne. We've all crucified our king. So in, in, on one level, the, the cross actually speaks a word of judgment over all human sin. It's the ultimate picture of what we have done in rebelling against our God. But there's another way that the cross judges the world. And, and this, is a, this is a sort of a, the cross makes a discrimination between two, two kinds of people. Because there's two reactions to the cross. And Jesus speaks about this with this whole light metaphor, right? The light has come into the world. And there are those who see the light and love the light. And there are those who see the light and hide in darkness. There, is those, there are those, now, on one level, we all start out in darkness, right? But you can only do two things with Christ. You can embrace him or you can reject him. There's no middle ground. You can love the light and follow the light or you can hide your face from the light and reject him. And so that's another kind of judgment. As, as Christ is lifted up, our very hearts are put under the microscope. As Jesus is lifted up, he leaves us no excuse. What will we do with this Savior? What will we do with our God? Will we embrace him or will we reject him? Will the light draw us in? Or will we hide in the darkness of our deeds? Now is the judgment of this world. It's the first strange, peculiar glory of the cross. The second peculiar glory of the cross, glorious victory. A moment that looks like defeat is actually Jesus' moment of victory. Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So Jesus says, what's going to happen on the cross is that the ruler of this world will be cast out. So this raises a lot of questions. What is he talking about? Who is he talking about? Let's start with that one. Who is the ruler of this world? Satan. Satan right? He's referring here to Satan. Um, this title is attributed to Satan elsewhere. Paul uses this title to refer to Satan. Um, this is the enemy. This is the deceiver. The ruler of this world. In what sense is Satan the ruler of this world? should be careful here. We must not attribute to Satan what belongs only to God. God alone is sovereign over all things. The ultimate ruler and sovereign over all things over this world is God. But Satan does, in some sense, rule the world. How? When did it start? And what is the nature of his power? Go back to the garden, right? Back to the garden. What is, what is Satan's scheme? He deceives, right? Through temptation, through the lies of his mouth, he leads Adam and Eve astray. And they're tempted to doubt the word of God, 
no longer to trust the word of God, no longer to allow God to be king over themselves, but instead to take things into their own hands, to turn from God, and to make themselves the masters of their fate. And they disobey God. And so this, the New Testament speaks of actually the whole world, everyone who's not in Christ, as actually being in some sense under the power of the prince of the power of the air, of Satan. If we have not had minds enlightened by the truth of Christ, we are deceived by the lies of Satan, whether we know it or not. Those who are in rebellion against God report to Satan whether they know it or not, because they're under the influence of his lies. And so what is the, what's the intention of Satan in doing this? Scripture tells us Satan's intention is to steal, kill, and destroy. What did he want for Adam and Eve? He wanted them to die, right? He points them down the road to self-destruction and says, run, right? And he says it's a beautiful way, right? He says this is the better way. But Satan's intention in deceiving human beings into sin and rebellion is that in sinning and rebelling against God that we would die. Satan hates God, hates his creation, hates you. He wants you dead. Okay. And Jesus says on the cross, he's going to do something about this. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Notice he says cast out. He does not yet say destroyed. Jesus' revelation to John speaks of a day that is coming when Satan will be finally, ultimately destroyed. On the cross, Satan is not destroyed, but he is dealt a death blow, or in the words of Colossians, he's been disarmed. He's been disarmed. Turn with me to Colossians 2. Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. This gives us a... a a greater understanding, I think, of what Jesus is getting at in terms of what effect the crucifixion has against the kingdom of Satan. Colossians 2. He's speaking here about the, the work of the cross, the effectiveness of the cross in the life of the Christian. Colossians 2, verse 13. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Right? He describes we've been forgiven through the cross. Christ has taken our sin and our death upon himself. It's been nailed to the cross. And in verse 15, in the next breath, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. How is it that Jesus disarms the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world? He disarms them by taking from Satan the one thing he has against us, the one thing which he can use for our destruction, right? What's Satan's plan to lure us into sin so that we would be guilty, so that we would die? And what does Jesus do? He bears our sin the sin nailed to the cross, our death on him, 
and who now can condemn? We're free. He's got nothing against us. He's been disarmed. This is the disarming of Satan. This is victory. You can see how we might be tempted to see the cross as a defeat. How even Satan might have been tempted to see the cross as a defeat, right? Here's the Son of God, dead. That's what, that's what I've wanted all along, right? But no, whether Satan realized it or not, this is actually the moment of Christ's great triumph because this is the moment in which Christ disarms Satan and delivers his people from any power he might hold against him against them now is the judgment of this world now will the ruler of this world be cast out two glories the glory of judgment the glory of victory and now the third and it's all building towards this this if we were to rank them is the greatest glory i think and i when i am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself I, this is Jesus, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This phrase, lifted up, is pregnant. There's so much here. On the most basic level, he's referring to being lifted up on the cross. We're told in verse 33, he said this to show what kind of death, by what kind of death he's going to die. He's going to, literally, he's going to be lifted up. He's going to be elevated off of the ground on the cross. But there's more here. This phrase, lifted up, it's the same in the original language as it is in English in terms of its having kind of a double meaning. It means lifted up physically, but also when you lift up something physically, you exalt it, right? Why do we have a cross on the top of the steeple? We're lifting it up, right? This is what we lift high. Why do we put flags up high? Because he's saying, this is what we're lifting up. We exalt what we lift up. And so Christ, and this is, again, it's, the gl- it's glory and humiliation at the same time, right? It's his humiliation that is his glory, right? In being lifted up on the cross, he's lifted up as victorious king. It's being lifted up. But there's even more than that. Because this is not the first time Jesus has spoken about being lifted up. John 3, again, this time just before verse 16 John 3, verse 14, Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, so he, Jesus, must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so here, so we're, We're referencing this phrase back to Jesus in John 3. And now Jesus is referencing lifted up all the way back to numbers. You don't have to turn there. Um, You can if you want to. Maybe this week, as homework, read Numbers 21 and read about this account of uh, Moses and the serpent in the wilderness. But the situation is this, that God had brought judgment on his people in the form of fiery serpents. 
There's these snakes that are biting the people and they're dying. And the people go to Moses and they say, please pray to God, please intercede for us so that we might live instead of die. And what God commands Moses to do is to take a stick and to put a, to sort of carve the snake around it, it's bronze, and, um, and to hold it up, to hold up this snake, and that if the people look at it after they've been bitten, they'll be saved, they won't die. Okay? This is the instrument of God's mercy, that Moses holds up this stick with a snake on it, And this is kind of the, this is the anti-venom, right? Though you've been judged, though you're condemned, if you look, you live, right? And Moses lifts it up. I imagine he had it as high as he could go, right? As many people see this, right, and live. And so Jesus says in John 3, as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, look and live. So must the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Not anti-venom for a snake bite, anti-venom for Satan's bite. Anti-venom for sin and death in Jesus by looking at him in faith. And so it's in light of all of this that Jesus says in John 12, verse 32, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, hung on the cross, I will draw all people to myself. This is the glory of the cross. This is why we put pictures of torture instruments all over everything we have. That's why the cross on our bulletin in our church and around our neck would be a pretty strange thing if you hadn't read the New Testament we hold this up wherever we can because we know that it's in looking to Christ on the cross that we are saved And notice that it's merely in looking. What did these people have to do as the snakes were biting them? Just to look. Just to look. Just to hear what Moses said. Look and be saved. Look and be saved. Look and be saved. And in the same way we cry, look and be saved. Look, here is Christ. Here is your Savior. Here is eternal life. Look, look and be saved. Run to him. Put your faith in him. Bow the knee to him and be saved. And this is the message that we carry. This is the message that we proclaim. Christ crucified. Look and live. Not just another week, but for eternal life. And not just to go on living, but actually to be drawn to him. Right? What does Jesus say? I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Right? So Christ is held up as crucified before the world, and the world is commanded, look and live. This is the gospel, right? Look and live. And what does Jesus do for those who look and live? Draws us to himself. Forgives us cleanses us by his blood and draws us into fellowship with God. 
It's the gospel of reconciliation actually bringing us back into, the fe- into fellowship with God that we'd lost in the garden and bringing us back to this hope of actually eternal life in the presence of God forevermore. I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And you see, it's the cross, it's the crucifixion of Jesus, which is the instrument of God to draw people to himself. It's the death of Christ which reconciles us. Our sin on, our sho- on his shoulders, our death upon him that we might live. And so this morning, if you are not a Christian, hear the call of Jesus from the cross. Isaiah 1, 18. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Friends, the light of the world is shining upon us even this morning as we come to the word. Jesus has now been publicly portrayed before us as crucified. And it is on us now to respond. The light is among you for a little while longer. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. Have you believed in the light? Have you looked to the cross? Have you come to Christ in faith? If you have not, come today. Come today. There it is, eternal life. Reconciliation with God. Life forevermore. There, look and be saved. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. And for those of you who know Jesus, The call is actually the same. It's not a one-time deal. After the first time we come, we have assurance we've been saved, right? We can. But it's not like that's the last time we come to Jesus. It's not like that's the last time Jesus uses the cross to draw us again to himself. Our Any growth we're going to see in Christ-likeness, any growth in maturity in the Christian life is going to come by daily, hourly, regularly grounding ourselves in the love of God as displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ. Again and again and again and again and again and again, God reminds us, come to me. Come to me. It's been paid. It is finished. It is done. Time and time again, he draws us with his love. As soon as we begin to forget the cross, as soon as we begin to forget the grace of God in Jesus Christ, our Christian life becomes about works. It becomes about what we're bringing to the table, and it's going to become dry and stale. And I would encourage you, if, if this morning your Christian walk is dry, if your prayers are cold, if you feel like you're floundering, if you feel like you're overwhelmed, look to the cross. 
Look to the love of God in Jesus Christ. This is the fountain that never runs dry. Drink and never thirst again. And keep drinking. Be greedy with the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Come to the fountain. Come to the table again and again and again. And feast with Jesus. Don't get bored of the cross. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain, free to all, a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. Near the cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me. Help me walk from day to day with its shadows o'er me. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever. Is that true of you? May that be our prayer. Jesus, keep me near the cross. Here we see Christ in glory, in judgment, in victory, drawing all people to himself. Let's pray. Father, draw us. Jesus, draw us. Keep us near the cross. Let not our hearts grow cold. Let not our prayers grow dry for want of the water of the grace of Jesus. Keep us near the cross. We know there is no power in the Christian life. We know there is no power for victory over sin. We know there is no power for growth and maturity. We know there is no power in our evangelism. We know there is no power in our teaching or in our service or in anything that we do if we are not daily, always besotted with the love of God in Jesus Christ. Keep us near the cross. Even now, Father, as we come to the Lord's table, remind us sweetly by your Spirit of the love you have poured out. Remind us of the forgiveness you have given. Remind us of what is so firmly and finally and eternally nailed to the cross that we bear no more. And enable our hearts to sing with joy, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's see, uh, Kevin and Dean come forward at this, at this time, and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Um, I'd like to make a couple of notes just as we come to the Lord's table, reminders that I like to give us every time we come. Um, one is just uh, to remind us what Paul warns us in his first letter to the Corinthians. Um, that we should examine ourselves before we come to the table. The, the joy and the benefit of this table is great if we come in true repentance and in living faith as Christians. Um, but Paul warns us that the danger of coming to the table is also great if we receive these gifts unthinkingly or casually. And 
Paul actually warns us that if we do so, we become guilty of profaning the body and the blood of Christ and eat and drink to our own condemnation. So I want to encourage you this morning to examine yourselves, ask yourselves even now, are you in the faith? Are you a Christian? And if you're a Christian, if you're walking with the Lord, repenting of your sin, trusting in Christ, at peace with his people, come. Come to the table. Come boldly to the table. This is your inheritance. And if you're unsure of your faith or you're standing with God, if you're not a Christian, I'd encourage you to refrain from coming forward to the table. And I would encourage you, if you're seeking this, if, you're, if Jesus is seeking you this morning, please come to me or, or to one of the leaders of the church. We'd love to talk about that. I like to say always when we come to this table that this table is not about what we bring to it. It is not about what we've done. It is a proclamation of grace, of the grace that God has shown us in the redemption of the world by the death of Jesus Christ and by his resurrection. He humbled himself to death on a cross for us sinners who lay in darkness and in the shadow of death that he might make us children of God and exalt us to everlasting life. And it's because of his great love for us that our Savior Jesus Christ has instituted and ordained that we who are his should eat this bread and drink this cup as a pledge of his love and a remembrance of his death. So that's what we do when we come to this table. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim this, the Lord's death until he comes. I encourage you to take a moment, if you need it, to pray and reflect. And when you're ready, come up this side aisle and um, receive the elements. Feel free to either to eat them here or to take them back to your seat. If you need some assistance and someone to bring you the elements, just raise a hand and we'll find you. So hear the invitation. Come, all who are hungry, all who are sinners, Come, all who look to Christ. Come, all who belong to him. Come and feast at the table of your Savior. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Christ Jesus, our Savior, died. He rose from the dead in glory. He ascended to the Father, where he sits and reigns at his right hand until all things are put under his feet. And he is coming again. Amen? from the dead.
great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is 